You're listening to Second Stories, created and produced by Second Story, with me, Abigail Brocker, as your host. Second Story is a nonprofit based in Northern Virginia, working to provide safe havens and opportunities to grow and thrive to youth in crisis and their families. We help at-risk and homeless youth step away from their first story, one often marked by abuse, hardship, and crisis, and write their own second story, full of hope and promise. Second Stories is the home for more stories like these from people in our community. just kind of waiting for him to tell me that I was horrible or that it was my fault and I remember looking back up at him and looking him looking at me and he reached across the table to, to take my hand and I gave him my hand and he said that it's not my fault he told me that none of that was my fault and I had never been so relieved in my life. This episode is part two of our two-part series about Johnny and his daughter, Meryl. This one is Meryl's story. The episodes should be heard in order, so if you're listening to this one first, I really encourage you to hit pause listen to Johnny's, and follow up with this one. The bird's eye view of Meryl's story feels familiar. You might recognize it in a friend, or a friend's child, or even yourself. But Meryl gets us right up close and personal with how it really felt, in a way that is altogether unique and personal. She also speaks articulately, thoughtfully, and importantly, about some issues we're hearing come up over and over again. And though it's one thing to read about it in the news or hear about it from someone on TV, it's another thing to listen to it as part of a real story, like it's being told by the person sitting right next to you. But Meryl did that for us. And by doing so, she gave us something truly beautiful. One quick note before we get to it. This story speaks about abuse in relatively graphic terms and might not be appropriate for young listeners. I'm so grateful to be sharing Meryl's story. Hi, Meryl. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much for being here with us. You're in Southern Virginia, so you're joining us over the phone. Um, We're just so glad that you're taking the time to talk with us and share your story. Thank you. Uh, We're getting the unique opportunity to talk to both you and your dad for this podcast. Of course, each of you have very different stories, but his story ended up sort of guiding you later on, which we're going to learn more about. I know your family has been very supportive. Were you guys close growing up? Yes, we've always been close. Um, we've been across country. My parents made it a point to make sure that my brother and I got to see a lot of America and, you know, where we came from. And um, we are just really close. We all are like to pick at each other and tell jokes and it's just we have a good time together. 
I mean, you're alluding to this, but even with this supportive family, at some point things did start to change for you, did start to get difficult for you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The, di- the dynamic began to change when I was probably 14 years old. And what was the catalyst, do you think? I just wasn't feeling... I, wa- I was drawing into myself because I was trying to deal with pain that I didn't know how to explain to my family. I just stopped communicating with them, um, mostly my dad. Um, I just wanted to hang out with my friends all the time, didn't want to be at home. And that started to lead into um, drinking and using drugs. Then the drinking got so, well, everything got so bad that um, I started to run away. I usually ended up at friends' houses, but sometimes I woke up in places with people that I didn't know. Um, and each time that I left and each time that I drank and used, it became more dangerous. When I was 18, um, my parents were missing work or my dad was missing work because of it. And my mom was emotional and upset. And, um, there was this one uh, drugs and alcohol played a role in that. The more I would drink, the less I would want to go home or, um, the more I used drugs, the more wild I became and thought, I'm just not going to go home. Um, but it all kind of came to a head one night um, or one morning after I had run away after a night of drinking. And this was probably like the third or fourth time I had run away. And I called my dad to tell him, you know, my dad had been out looking for me all night. And I knew that whether, you know, I knew it. My friends knew it, um, and I didn't have anywhere to go, so I called my dad and told him where I was, um, and then he came and picked me up, and I thought he would just drive me straight to school, um, but instead he drove me home and had me pack a bag, and uh, he then he, we drove to the shelter, and he told me he just didn't know what to do anymore. And that coming to the shelter was the only thing that he knew that might help because it had helped him when he was young. When your dad picked you up or when he would come find you, were you relieved and glad to see him or were you angry? Honestly, I was relieved because a lot of the times I was scared of where I was. um, And I knew that going with him, you know, he might be mad at me, but I would be okay. Right. So he takes you to the shelter, which is um, second story shelter. Yeah. And were you reluctant to go there or were you ready? No, I was ready. I, I had no idea what this was. He had never talked to me about this before. I had no idea that my dad had even been there. Um, yeah, this was new. And I, instead of being angry or afraid of it, I was more like curious and seeing this different reaction in him, like, okay, he, he wants to help me. Like, he's not yelling at me. He's not asking me, why are you doing this? He's saying, I want to help you, and this is all I know that can help you. And it was an option that I was interested in. Um, but I did not know what it was. I had no idea. I'd never heard of it. And he just said that he knew that it helped him when he was young, so 
That's why he was bringing me. Do you feel like that connected you deeper with your dad? I think at the time I didn't realize that it was going to be so bonding. But as I've gotten older, I realized that was a vulnerable moment for him too. And I think as a parent, you eventually have a lot of vulnerable moments. And that was his first time really showing me like, hey, I had problems too. I don't know what your problems are, but I want to help you. So this is what I'm offering. So what happened when you arrived at the shelter? I don't remember exact details, but I remember them talking to me, telling me what my responsibilities would be and that, you know, I could still go to school because I was still a senior in high school. Um, And, you know, that they would call the school to make sure that I was attending each and every class and that I had to come straight back there when when school let out. And just kind of, you know, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. And these are, you know, if you're going to stay here, then you need to follow these rules, which was fine because it was kind of a relief, like, to have structure. Yeah, your life had been chaos. Yeah, in my, I'm, in my head was so much chaos that having someone, and not that my parents didn't try to create structure for me, they did, but it, I didn't want, I wasn't responding to them well. So having another person come in and say, hey, I'm going to help you, but I need you to do this what somehow that got through to me. Why do you think it was that the shelter worked better than your parents? Sometimes I feel like parents are too close to the situation. And I, it's easier to take your feelings out or your anger out on someone who's really close to you than it is on someone that you don't know. That was like the beginning of my healing process, which is it's still, I still have healing to do, even as an adult. Um, but that was the start of it. That was like a turning point that said, okay, this happened to you. You don't have to hold it in anymore. You can let other people in who may not know how you feel exactly, but are willing to support you, that you, you don't have to hide it anymore. What was it specifically at the shelter that really did that for you? The counselors. Um, there was one particular counselor, that, and I can't remember what his name was, um, but he really kind of just laid it out straight and said, let's figure out what is causing you to do these things. I want to help you. So that and just like the general structure of the place, um, knowing that it was safe and that there were other kids in there with me that may not have been having the same issues, but were having turmoil in their own lives. And they also wanted or needed help. So I finally felt like I was at a place where I could get help and maybe not be judged for it. What do you believe was the reason that everything changed? Okay. So Like I said, I started to distance myself when I was 14, but the reason all of that started happening was because when I was younger, I'm from Florida, 
Um, and we moved to Virginia when I was almost nine years old. The one of my earliest memories is of a family member sexually molesting me. So when we moved to, to Virginia, it, you know, that person wasn't an immediate danger in my life anymore, but the damage had already been done. I was afraid of my body. I was afraid of myself. I was thought I was a bad person that I was nasty and horrible. Um, I couldn't understand what had happened to me or, and why. And I thought I brought it on myself. You know, what did I do to make him do that? Um, and as a young, a child, um, your brain is just not capable of understanding those things. And occasionally I occasionally still saw this person at like family gatherings or like family reunions. And as I got older, the assaults would get more intense. Um, so then once I discovered drugs and alcohol, I felt like they made me feel like I was invincible and I was stronger than what I was. And I could forget all that pain. Um, and that I, it, I was in control, but in all reality, I was completely out of control. And I, I put myself in increasingly dangerous situations because I felt less inhibited. Uh, I remember climbing over the edge of a hotel balcony and thinking that everything would just be over, everything would just be better if I could just let go. Um, and I'm grateful now that I didn't do it, but like I said, that was my mindset. And when I was sober, I didn't think about doing things like that, but when I wasn't sober, all of those things rushed back and it was either I was super emotional or I was invincible and things just became worse. Um, and my parents didn't know any of it. Well, they knew some of it to a point, but I don't really think that they knew how bad it actually was. Um, my using. They didn't know about the abuse, so they only knew about the using, right? Yeah, they had no idea. Yeah, right. They had no idea why I was using or drinking, they only knew that I was. And so I think that they might've thought that I was just acting out for whatever reason, I guess my age. Um, but what they didn't know is that I was trying to conceal this pain that I was so ashamed of. I just thought like I could never tell anybody whatever happened to me, especially not my parents. Um, so like I said, things got worse. Um, and then when I was 17, I was at the beach and I, we met some guys on the boardwalk and agreed them, agreed to meet them later at their apartment. They said that they were having a party. Um, so we went and I remember having a drink and then kind of things got really fuzzy uh, my body kind of just gave out, but my brain was still fully aware, but I couldn't really feel my body. It was almost like being paralyzed. And I remember feeling like my tears rolling down my cheeks, but I couldn't scream or even make a single sound. Um, so they 
raped me. And when it was over, uh, they put me in a cab. My friend had to drag me inside um, back up to the hotel room. And I vomited and cried and we cried until the sun came up. And I remember just feeling completely wrecked and my body was wrecked and my head was wrecked. Um, I just felt completely broken. Um, and then, so we went home or back to my house and I remember sitting on the floor in my bathroom and I remember being really afraid to look in between my legs, but I kind of knew that I had to, but there was a lot of pain and there were fingerprints, like bruises in the shape of fingerprints and covering the insides of my thighs and like the insides of my knees and I remember crying just tracing the outlines of those bruises oh my gosh and you didn't feel like you could tell anyone no and I remember crying and thinking you did this this is your fault why do you think you place that blame on yourself well I think well, I always felt like anything that had happened to me was my fault. So why wouldn't this be my fault? I was the one who went to the party. I was the one that drank the drink. Um, so it, it did. It felt like my fault. And so what I did was I uh, sucked it up and chalked it up to just another thing that I did that was my fault and got on the phone and figured out where the next party was that night. And I went to another party and I had another drink and it just, it was just a cycle, a terrible cycle. So I never dealt with that or any of it. It never got dealt with. It was like, brush it under the rug and move on. Um, don't tell anyone because no one wants to know how disgusting you really are. Um, so then, you know, drinking got worse and the drugs became harder. Well, no drug is little, but it became, I became more daring, I guess. Um, okay, sure, I'll take that or I'll try that. And it, it was to the point where I just I didn't care. Um, and then that's really when the, the running away began because I just felt like no one understood me. My parents definitely didn't understand me and not that that was their fault. They couldn't understand me. Um, and so I just didn't want to deal with them. I didn't want to deal with anything. So, and I told my counselor at Second Story the stuff and I, and I waited for him. I told him that whole story and along with a lifetime of other details and other nights that, you know, were, were terrible. Um, and this is the first I, person you've ever told. Right. Ever like in full blown detail and just everything. And I sat there and I looked for him, looked at him and then I hung my head and I was just kind of waiting for him to tell me that I was horrible or that 
it was my fault. And I remember looking back up at him and look, him looking at me and he reached across the table to, to take my hand and I gave him my hand and he said that it's not my fault. He told me that none of that was my fault. And I had never been so relieved in my life to have another person tell me that something horrible that had happened to me wasn't my fault. Um, and he, he also helped me make the decision to tell my parents. I, I wanted the help and I wanted my parents to finally understand me because in all reality, I knew that I was hurting my parents and it hurt me to, that I was hurting them, but I still couldn't stop and I didn't know how to stop. So I thought that maybe explaining why I was doing the things I was doing would help all of us heal. So I called my mom and told her that I was ready to talk and she came. Uh, I told her I wanted to talk to her alone first. Um, and she came and she held my hand and cried and she wanted to know if I was ready to tell my dad and I told her I couldn't. Um, I had spent so long ignoring him and avoiding him that I didn't want to be like, it just felt weird for our first conversation, like a first open conversation to be about this. Like I needed to kind of like, I don't know, kind of ease into it. Why do you think you'd been avoiding him specifically for so long? Because he's a man. Um, and like the counselor that I told this to was a man as well. And don't ask me why I decided to tell him. I have no idea. It was just his vibe, I guess. It was really good. He had good energy. But my dad, to me at that point in my life, had been kind of, I was afraid of him. Because A, he was a man, B, I felt like we were just so, had drifted so far apart that he would just be so angry at me. Um, I really, I don't know why exactly I chose him to take all of this out on mostly, but I just felt like he would never understand me. And I was wrong. I mean, all he wanted to do was try to understand me, but I wouldn't let him. So, I, you know, I asked my mom to kind of tell him first, which I'm sure was extremely hard for her. Um, and she believed me. And I was really grateful for it. And um, then, you know, she told my dad and he believed me as well, which was even more to my surprise. And instead of them being you know, they were, they were really sad and extremely angry, but not, not at me. They were angry towards these other people and these situations that had happened. And they were angry at themselves. And at the time I was like, you know, why are you so mad at yourself? Like this, you didn't do anything. And that was the thing. They felt like they didn't do anything. They didn't do anything to prevent it. They didn't protect me. And that's, as a parent, you know, that's your main job, um, which it, it was not their fault. None of this was in their control, and I needed them to, and I still need them to know that. Um, 
I don't hold them accountable for anything. And I'm a parent myself now, and I understand the responsibility you feel for the things that happen to your children, and it's hard. So, you know, I, I didn't go home straight after that. I stayed at the at Second Story for a few weeks until I was ready, until they felt I was ready to go home. And it wasn't easy to go home. You know, it. I was faced with all new challenges now. I, you know, I had to be honest with myself, which is extremely hard for a lot of people to do. And I had to be honest with my parents. Um, and I had to do these things while trying to stay sober at least, or at least not, you know, completely going off the deep end. Um, what was that process like after coming back from the shelter and going home? It was different because my parents knew everything that I was doing. There were times when I was like, oh my gosh, can you guys just leave me alone? Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I was like, I told you everything, just leave me alone. I've been doing this forever. I know how to deal with it, um, which is not the truth, but they were just trying to help me. But yeah, tr- transitioning is not easy. And I it's not a full-blown, like, immediate recovery, you know. And I'm not going to lie and say that I stopped doing drugs and I stopped drinking right away because that didn't happen either. And now, you know, I'm almost 33 and every day I think about what happened to me. It's not something that I don't go a day without thinking about, but I know how to cope and I know it's not my fault. And I have a really great life that I created because I wanted to, and I wanted to live, and I wanted to thrive. Um, I am so glad that I didn't give up on myself and that no one else gave up on me. And I'm grateful that my dad took me to Second Story and was vulnerable in that moment with me just because I had a good support system and I had a great family life doesn't mean that I was sheltered from the bad things and bad people in the world. Tell us about your family now, your your own little family. <laughs> so my family that I created? Yeah, the family you created. <laughs> um, wow. I am married and my husband is amazing. He, he's just amazing. Your dad spoke so highly of your husband too. He, he's a great, wonderful man. He, he knows everything that happened and he knows I still struggle. Um, you know, I have, terrible terrible anxiety there are times when I I let my anxiety get the best of me and we get through it together um we have two children who are almost nine and almost five and um they are incredible intelligent beautiful little people 
And I'm so grateful for them. Because if I did, if I've ever done anything right in my whole life, it was definitely those two. (laughs) They are just beautiful. And I thank God every day for putting them in my life and giving me these wonderful reasons to keep going, to keep striving for better, to be a better person. Um, But it also creates a lot of anxiety and fear that, you know, I can't protect them from everything. And so there are times when I have to like, you know, stop myself from thinking, what if it happens to them? What if what happens to me happened to them and they didn't know how to tell me and, you know, the cycle happened again. Um, so we're very open with each other. I've made it clear ever since they were able to understand, you know, it's okay to come to mommy and tell me, you know, what happened or how you feel and it's okay to cry. It's okay to be emotional and it's best to be honest. Um, those are things that I've learned from my own experiences and things that I learned from my own parents um, and just things that I want for them. I want them to know that what happens to them is not their fault. Do you think you knew at the time that the reason you were acting out was because of what had happened to you? No, I absolutely did not understand that. Like my my brain was so chaotic, I couldn't. I, there was no way at that point in my life that I would have made that connection, and that connection didn't get made until the counselor at Second Story told me that that's probably what was going on. That I was using substances to mask my pain. Um. And from what I understand, that that's a pretty common coping mechanism. But I didn't know that until someone told me that. Right, right. So with that kind of hindsight, if you were to look at a young person who had experienced the same things you had experienced, what would you want to tell them? What do you wish you would have understood in that moment? I really wish I would have known how good of a person I was and that you are not in control of another person's actions but you are in control of your own actions this is something that people who have experienced abuse seem to say a lot that they have felt ashamed and yet shame, you know, there's no reason really for them to be ashamed. Why can you articulate why it was that you felt shame? For some reason, sex is deemed as shameful and people don't want to talk about that kind of thing. Women are often objectified. And so then when something does happen and you try to tell somebody, they're like, well, did you see what you were wearing? Or did you, how many drinks did you have? And I think that's where the shame comes in because like you think like, oh, well, I did, I did this. And, you know, I did flirt with him a little bit. You know, I did pat his shoulder or, you know, I talked to him for more than five minutes or maybe I let him think that I wanted to have sex. And I didn't. But as a child, 
who's molested, there is, like, you, you didn't do, there's nothing that a child could possibly do to invite that sort of violence into their life. No, absolutely not. But the shame is just, I don't know where it comes from, but it just seems like you are taught from a very young age that talking about things that are sexual is shameful and that you shouldn't talk about it. And if something happens to you, you just deal with it. Something else that I think people say a lot is, you know, if you, if something like this happens to you, why would anyone wait to talk about it? Obviously, there are a lot of reasons why, but for your personal experience, how would you answer that question? Why were you unable to talk about this right away? What made that so hard? Well, a lot of it is, you know, I was told that it was okay, that it was our secret, that, oh, one day we'll get married, or one day this will all be okay and we won't have to hide. But if you tell your mom and dad or you tell anyone, I'm going to kill you, or I'm going to hurt you, or I'm going to hurt your mom, I'm going to hurt your brother. Um, and if you tell anyone, no one will ever love you, no one will want you. I mean, these are things that I was told. Um, and that is why women wait or they feel like they need like, a, you know, strength in numbers. Um, when another woman comes forward, another woman feels brave enough to do the same thing. But why we wait, it all comes back to the whole shame they don't, we don't want it held against us for the rest of our lives. Like, oh, there goes that girl that says she was raped, but, you know, who knows if she actually was. There's a lot of stigma, and it's a, it's a struggle. It's an internal struggle, and then sometimes it's a power struggle. You feel like that person still has power over you, and it might take a woman 40 years before she finally feels comfortable saying something. I think your story is one that needs to be told. I admire so much about you. This is really hard stuff to talk about, but you acknowledge how important it is that people are talking about it, that there isn't a place for shame, there isn't a place for secrecy, that you you or anyone else who's experienced this don't deserve to have had this happen to you. But I really think that there's healing for people listening and, and people who find solidarity with your story. I'm really thankful that you were willing to talk about this. Thank you. And I appreciate you reaching out to me and I appreciate everything that Second Story has done for me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Second Stories. If you enjoyed this episode, we would be so thankful if you rated our podcast and left us a review. Be sure to also hit subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. Second Stories is created and produced by Second Story with production support from Franklin Vaughn. Second Story is a nonprofit based in Northern Virginia that works to provide safe havens and opportunities to grow and thrive to youth in crisis and their families. Learn more about what Second Story does and how you can support us at second-story.org. That's second-story.org. We hope you'll join us next time.